Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome. My name is Janine. Welcome to my session on Michael Burnham and intersectionality in Star Trek Discovery. I'm really so excited and so happy to be here. So um, actually, I've been following the Women at War podcast even before I started to make my own podcast. So I really want to thank them from the bottom of my heart for featuring my show on this really awesome IDIC festival. And I think it's just so hopeful to see that there are so many like-minded people that really try to put effort and make an active effort to try and realize Star Trek's really great IDIC ideals. So just some background on myself, which might help place my session in a bit more context. I study feminism and representation in science fiction at university. I am currently doing my PhD on the topic. So this discussion on Michael Burnham and intersectionality is actually part of my PhD research. It's chapter eight <laughs> in my, my study. So I decided to start the Sci-Fi Feminist podcast because I have so much academic knowledge and research on the topic of women and representation in sci-fi. And I wanted to share it with the world in a form that is not so exclusionary. I'm really all for academic knowledge being freely accessible for everyone. So that's why I made this podcast. I feel like, um, you know, it's only the academics and the people in their ivory towers that ever get to read these things. And I think it's sad because, um, you know, all this content is really amazing and the study is really relevant for our current zeitgeist and context. So that's why I started the Sci-Fi Feminist podcast. So I also have a YouTube channel where I post the podcast episodes and extra content as well. And I've been promising myself for weeks now that I'm also going to start doing some reviews of Star Trek comics. So please head over to my YouTube channel. It's called The Sci-Fi Feminist and subscribe if you would like to. And um, yeah, I'll post all sorts of cool content there and also the podcast. And also I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and all of those social media sites. Uh, I think it's all on the Women at Work website. So uh, please uh, follow my social media and the YouTube channel if you want to hear more about this great topic. Right. So then let me get into this discussion of Michael Burnham and intersectionality. So this is a bit embarrassing, but... I only started watching Star Trek for my PhD research, which was only about three years ago. My first Star Trek was Star Trek Voyager, and I fell in love with Captain Janeway. I wrote an entire chapter on her <laughs> because she's just so amazing. So she's really my first love. And I don't know if this is something to be proud of or not, but I think I've watched Voyager about three times from the beginning to the end, all seven seasons. I, I really love it. But then one day after I finished Voyager, I think it was my first or second watching of Voyager, I was scrolling on Netflix and I saw that there was this recent Star Trek show. And that was, of course, Star Trek Discovery. So... I started watching it, and after the first episode, I was completely blown away and absolutely hooked. I think I binged the first season of Discovery in one weekend. I was so blown away because for the first time, we see this diverse crew consisting of an Asian female captain, 
played by Michelle Yeoh, of course, who's one of my favorite actors. <laughs> my sister knows how I'm always going on about Michelle Yeoh. And various other characters of color on the bridge crew. And then most significantly of all, of course, is that for the first time in Star Trek history, we see a black woman, Michael Burnham, as the main protagonist. So naturally, Michael Burnham made it into my research because I thought she was so progressive and extremely refreshing. So there are many facets of her that are worth discussing, and I think you can write a whole uh, PhD just on Michael Burnham. But today I will focus only on intersectionality, since I think that intersectionality is a key aspect of infinite diversity, infinite combinations. So... Yes, I hope you look forward to the discussion. Like I said, I'm really excited to be here and to be able to talk about this. So thank you for having me and um, let me get right into it. Now, I don't want to bore you too much with academic theory on intersectionality, but I think it's worth briefly mentioning some key definitions in order to have a framework through which to look at Michael Burnham. So I'm going to look at very brief history and a few key definitions of intersectionality. And then I'm going to look at how this manifests in Michael Burnham as a woman of color in Star Trek. Okay, so a general definition of intersectionality is the belief that women experience oppression in varying configurations and in varying degrees of intensity and that cultural patterns of oppression are not only interrelated, but are bound together and influenced by the intersexual systems of society. So to paraphrase, <laughs> that's um, <laughs> academic mumbo jumbo. Um, women are not only oppressed in terms of their sex and their gender, but especially women of color are oppressed by gender and race. And for example, queer women are oppressed by their sex and sexuality. And for example, queer women of color are oppressed by their sex, their race, and their sexuality. So this is how intersectional theory uh, approaches this issue. And um, the origin of this theory, it was in fact a theorist named Kimberly Crenshaw. She was a woman of color writing in the 1980s, and she actually coined the term. Oh, there's a cat. <laughs> we can put the cat count up to one. <laughs> there's a cat. Um, so yes, Kimberly Crenshaw, in an essay titled Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. That's the title of her essay. She explains through the discussion of three law cases how women of color experience oppression in terms of race and gender, especially in civil rights law, as opposed to white women who are only oppressed in terms of their gender. So she actually, it's a very good essay. It's not too complicated. I, I don't like it when academics write in complicated ways, but Crenshaw is, Crenshaw's essay is quite an easy read. So I highly recommend if you're into this to read that seminal and foundational essay for intersectional theory. So she advocates that the intersections between race and sex should be taken into account when examining the ways in which black women specifically are subordinated as, and I quote, the intersectional experience of 
sorry, the intersectional experience is greater than the sum of racism and sexism. So that is um, what she basically argued in that paper. So then, of course, with its diverse clue, crew and the black lead protagonist, how they are represented and whether they succeed as intersectional characters in Star Trek Discovery is important. So I would like to show in this discussion that even though Star Trek Discovery takes place in a fictional world, and you know, even though Michael Burnham might seem far removed from the systems of oppression that we experience or that uh, black women especially experience in American society or in society in the world in general, Michael Burnham is shown as an intersectional character and she is complex. And in my opinion, she is a positive representation of a woman of color in space. That is, of course, why I love her so much and also why she consists of another chapter in uh, my study. So first, some background on Michael Burnham and Star Trek Discovery. So as you know, Discovery is set in the same century as the original series, you know, in terms of the fictional timeline. And it is therefore, to a large extent, bound by established Star Trek canon. So since Discovery is arguably a Star Trek series that is critical of and reflects on Star Trek itself, okay, this is an argument that another theorist made, and um, I'm not going to go into that because that's a, a whole new can of worms on its own. But um, yeah, someone said that actually Star Trek Discovery is a track that is critical of Star Trek itself. Um, so it's thus no surprise that the writers of Discovery placed Burnham at the center of its very familiar canon. As you all know, Burnham is the adopted daughter of Ambassador Sarek and Amanda Grayson, and thus also the famous Spock's adopted sister. I saw a meme that my sister sent me, and um, it's that meme of the, the guy that taps on the hood of the car. And then it is, um, it said like discovery or something. And then it's like, yeah, how does the meme go? Um, it's like, yeah, you'd be surprised how many uh, dead adopted <laughs> siblings or long forgotten adopted siblings you can fit into this bad boy. <laughs> so that was a funny meme. I'll, I'll find it and post it on Instagram. <laughs> I, I just, I think I ruined the punchline, but yeah, there's, meme is pretty funny. So anyway, back to the discussion, Michael Burnham's identity is from the outset then quite complex. Her human parents were, as she initially thinks, killed by Klingons when she was very young, and she was subsequently raised on Vulcan by a family that is itself unconventional, having a Vulcan father and a human mother. Then after being rejected by the Vulcan Science Academy, Michael Burnham is placed on the USS Shenzo to serve under a model Starfleet captain, Philippa Giorgio. Now, there's this one theorist that uh, published a paper in a book. There's actually an academic publication only on Star Trek Discovery. It's called Fighting for the Future, Essays on Star Trek Discovery and Representation, something like that. So if you're into that, then um, it's definitely worth the read. So one theorist from that publication, Amanda Keeler, she says, and I explain, uh, I don't explain, I quote, <laughs> she explains, I quote, in Burnham, the cold logical sensibility that shaped her post-adoption Vulcan upbringing clashes with her human impetuousness. Continuously, 
which marks her as, and I quote again, a talented but complexly flawed character from the outset. Now, some background on that. In fact, the Klingon Federation War, which is the overriding narrative arc of season one, it's actually initiated because of Burnham's internal struggle between her Vulcan rationality, her human emotion, and the added dimension of her loyalty to Captain Giorgio and the Federation in the pilot episode, The Vulcan Hello. Now, to briefly explain the episode, I'm sure most people have watched it, um, but what basically happens in that episode is that the USS Shenzhou, which is captained by Philippa Giorgio, a.k.a. Michelle Yeoh, <laughs> a.k.a. AKA my favorite, <laughs> um, the Shenzhou unwittingly stumbles across the Klingon Federation, uh, the Klingon flag flagship, and Michael Burnham, out of ignorance and self-defense, kills the Klingon torchbearer on the ship. So the, the Shenzo is then ordered to stand down until the fleet arrives, but Michael Burnham, after consulting with Sarek, her adoptive Vulcan father, directly disobeys Captain Giorgio's orders, and then she fires on the Klingon ship before the Klingons can attack first. And this is what the Vulcans refer to as a Vulcan hello. And then, of course, how the Vulcans um, defeated the Klingons, or not, not defeated the Klingons, overcame the Klingons, um, according to Sarek. So for Amanda Keeler, it is, in fact, the very existential dilemma caused by Michael Burnham's Vulcan rationality and her human emotion that causes her to stage this mutiny. So then I would read more into that and further suggest that this act is the product not of the sum of Burnham's Vulcan logic and her human emotion, but rather at the point where these two seeming opposites, uh, rationality and emotion, where they intersect. So although this is in the realm of science fiction, this approach to Michael Burnham's identity reflects what Kimberly Crenshaw theorized regarding intersectionality in 1989 already. Okay, so that is the first point on Michael Burnham and intersectionality. So then to continue with this idea of this existential dilemma that she has because of her Vulcan upbringing and her human emotion, it's not only apparent in the pilot episode, but this, this problem surfaces throughout season two, especially in the form of recurring flashbacks. So we learn much more about Michael Burnham's upbringing and how she was raised on Vulcan and some family issues in season two, which of course I really enjoyed as well. The flashbacks don't only reveal details about Burnham's convoluted relationship with her estranged brother Spock, but they also it also explores the origins of the internal conflict between Burnham's Vulcan upbringing and her human biology. In the episode called Leth, I think that's how you <laughs> pronounce it, Burnham experiences repeated flashbacks of the day that she was rejected from the Vulcan Science Academy. So I continue quoting from Amanda Keeler. This episode shows, I quote, the formative moment that foreshadows further conflict between Burnham's biology and her upbringing, creating a complex and imperfect character. So that's what Amanda Keeler says about Burnham. Moreover, the consequences of this internal conflict continue to shape Burnham's actions far beyond her mutiny in the pilot episode. 
So we see in a highly emotional and illogical decision at the last second, Burnham brings the, and I quote, extremely wicked, even for a Terran. That's how the Terran emperor describes herself. She brings that that wicked person back to the prime universe in the episode What's Past is Prologue, following the untimely death of her Captain Giorgio in the prime universe. That is, of course, kind of the result of her in subordination. Now, of course, because I I really love I love the Giorgio character, and um, of course, I know there's a lot of problematic aspects about you know having people refer to her as Space Hitler <laughs> on Twitter. So obviously, it might be problematic bringing Space Hitler back to the Prime Universe. But I was also actually hoping that she will bring back the Emperor. <laughs> but yeah, that's a side note. But this decision, you know, which clearly can result in many problems for the future, um, this decision is clearly the result of complex feelings of guilt after betraying her captain and a need to right previous wrongs and an undeniably human solution to a mistake she made while employing her Vulcan logic in episode one. And then season three of Star Trek Discovery explores these complex emotions even further by hurling the crew 930 years into the future. I would think I would have a, a serious existential crisis if I had to be um, transported 930 years into the future. But um, yeah, anyway, I think the the season three of Discovery explored these, these complex emotions and this like temporal displacement quite well and in quite a lot of detail. So season three is, of course, far more contemplative than seasons one and two. And it deals with Burnham's post-traumatic stress after this temporal displacement. So for the most of the season, Burnham struggles to renegotiate her position within Starfleet in a world where the Federation no longer exists. And her year-long experience as an intergalactic courier continues to shape her present decisions. I found it quite interesting that in season three, she asks Giorgio, you know, do you want to go on an unsanctioned mission with me? And then <laughs> Giorgio is like, yeah, you had me at unsanctioned mission. So, you know, we think the earlier Burnham might not have done something like that. Now, okay, I know it seems like I'm just <laughs> recapping what happened in all the seasons, but... Um, I will explain now how this relates to intersectionality. So there is another theorist in that wonderful publication. Her name is Ina. I don't know how to spell the surname or how to say it. It's B-A-T-Z-K-E. Maybe Bat Batska? <laughs> Batska? I'm just going to say Ina Batska. She explains, and I quote, Discovery intentionally was created as a post-network serial instead of following a traditional series format which means that there is an emphasis on seriality across episodes instead of separate episodes with self-contained narratives like we see on Star Trek Voyager, for example. So, yeah, as you know, in Voyager, you know, um, the longest narratives last maybe two episodes, like uh, Year of Hell or Endgame or what was the other one? Killing Game. Um but most of the time, after one episode, the, the story is resolved. And then in the next episode, the characters seem unaffected by what happened in the previous episode. I think there are quite a few memes on that, too. 
you know, in the previous episode, the, the character nearly dies. And then next episode, they're totally fine as if nothing happened. But Star Trek Discovery takes a different approach. It uses seriality. So we see that even the emotions carried over seasons um, keep, you know, keep influencing the character's present decisions. So they they are actually allowed to carry over feelings of loss, joy, so forth across episodes and across seasons. Now, the theorist, Batska, she says that Discovery's I quote, pronounced focus on series that this new storytelling mode interacts with the mirror universe. This allows it to blur various boundaries in terms of race, gender, morality, and so forth. Okay, so this in turn allows discovery to reflect the notions of intersectionality and complexity in ways that are not static and fixed, but rather in ways that acknowledge the various factors such as, and I quote, age, class, sexuality, and gender as intersecting with each other and not as competing with each other. So, yeah, one could perhaps rephrase this or paraphrase this to say that Star Trek Discovery, through its seriality and its complex main protagonist, Michael Burnham, it presents identity as interlocking in the sense that these intersections, the intersections of these systems shape the main protagonist and continue to shape her. Yes, so um, I hope that's not a reach. <laughs> Sometimes um, I, I get feedback that, you know, that's a reach. But um, yeah, that's my interpretation of how uh, Michael Burnham's story, you know, just her story itself and the way that she carries over her emotions and ideals and experiences over episodes and seasons, you know, this adds to her representation as an intersectional character. Okay, and um, another aspect of Michael Burnham, and uh, this is, I think, one of my favorite things about Star Trek Discovery, another aspect that adds to her representational, uh, her representation as an intersectional character is her three mothers or mother fig figures that shape her actions, motivations, and personality. So to elaborate, who, who is Michael Burnham's three mothers? <laughs> well, she has her biological mother, Gabrielle Burnham. Then she has her adoptive mother on Vulcan, Amanda Grayson, who is a human living on Vulcan. And then she has her mentor, Philippa Giorgio, in the Prime Universe and in the Mirror Universe, actually also her adoptive mother, Philippa Giorgio. So I would argue that... The fact that Michael Burnham has three mother figures, you know, even the, that fact alone has some very, um, yeah, I think it's a positive thing to have three mother figures. You know, it shows a positive representation of motherhood, which Disney loves to destroy. <laughs> Disney never shows good mothers. But, um, yeah, we see a positive representation of motherhood. But even more than that is that, they add to Michael Burnham's intersectionality. So even more meaningful for Burnham in terms of intersectionality is that all three of her mothers themselves have complicated identities that are each marked by multiple intersections as well. Her biological mother, Dr. Gabrielle Burnham, 
is a black woman. Her adoptive mother, Amanda Grayson, is a human living on Vulcan. And her adopted mother in the Mirror Universe, Emperor Philippa Giorgio, is a Malaysian woman who is bisexual and also crosses over from the Mirror to the Prime Universe. So we see a lot of complicated um, identities, you know, not mainstream identities, but marginalized identities in these women. So let me explain a little bit further. First, let's look at Gabrielle Burnham. She's a doctor, <laughs> by the way. So she's very smart um, woman, which is great. You know, I love seeing uh, female scientists. Um, yeah, maybe I shouldn't go into that discussion today. But, you know, female scientists are always uh, good to see. So first, although Gabrielle Burnham is absent for most of Michael's life, she gives a very moving account of how she was present at each of Burnham's significant life events in the episode The Red Angel when the crew of Discovery managed to keep Gabriel Burnham in the present for a few hours. And then the second time when Michael Burnham encounters her biological mother is in the season three episode called Unification 3, where Gabriel Burnham acts as her advocate before the Romulan and Vulcan Council. Um, that was a pretty cool Easter egg for me, too. Uh, when we think of uh, Star Trek Picard, these uh, warrior nuns, <laughs> if that's what you can call them, uh, they play a pretty big role in Star Trek Picard. So when I saw that, I think it's called the Kuat Milat. Is that their name? Uh, I might stand under correction, but um, when when Michael Burnham's mother pitched and she's uh, this warrior nun, I was like, ah, so cool. It's so cool. You know, they, it's really cool because, um, yeah, I liked those characters in Star Trek Picard, um, but I'm getting off the point. Um, so back to Unification 3. In this episode, it's revealed that despite not being there for most of Burnham's life, Gabriel Burnham has a very intimate knowledge of her daughter's character and her motivations. And in this episode, she helps Burnham overcome a serious personal hurdle, of course, which is her inability to find her place 930 years into the future. Now, although Gabriel Burnham does not necessarily contribute to Michael's intersectional identity directly, she does so biologically. Now, that's for a lack of better words. Um, I wasn't sure to say how, you know, biologically, <laughs> but um, what I mean is that they're both black women, which, you know, although it does so implicitly, it places them within the legacy of black feminist criticism, especially because we see um, Gabrielle Burnham is a very powerful black woman and also a very smart black woman. Um, it places them within the legacy of that early feminist criticism by women of color and also intersectional theory. Actually, um, much of third wave feminism itself was built on women of color's criticism of second wave feminism, which they said was blatantly racist and homophobic. And then, of course, more significantly, and I, I reiterate, you know, is that a black woman who transcends reductive stereotypes through her complexity. <laughs> as I explained earlier, is the main protagonist of the series. You know, she is the focus of Star Trek Discovery. So in that way, I, I could see or I, I read it as, you know, uh, Gabrielle Burnham 
directly influences Michael Burnham's intersectional identity. Then moving on to Michael Burnham's adoptive mothers, Amanda Grayson and Philippa Giorgio, in both universes, it gets a bit complicated when you talk about Philippa Giorgio because there's literally two of her, but I will try to distinguish throughout. Most of the times when I refer to her, it's the Emperor Giorgio because um, we see her for much longer than we see Prime Giorgio. So they play an, an equally important role in her character development and in her identity as an intersectional character. So first, Amanda Grayson. We find out in flashbacks throughout season two that Amanda Grayson always reminded Burnham to retain her humanity following her strict Vulcan upbringing. In this way, as a human woman living on Vulcan, Amanda, although she is oh, okay, a cat, <laughs> um, although Amanda is, you know, um, very mainstream, white, heterosexual, part of the upper middle, middle class being Ambassador Sarek's wife, um, you know, although her identity is, is very much mainstream, in her capacity as Burnham's adoptive mother, she clearly facilitated one of the key features of Burnham's complexity which is the intersection of Burnham's humanity and her Vulcan upbringing. And um, as I explained throughout, um, you know, uh, this intersection between her, her Vulcan upbringing and her human emotion, which Amanda Grayson actually facilitated, we found out later, you know, is one of the key things that, um, yeah, the intersection of these two seemingly opposites you know, frame Michael Burnham's decisions throughout. And it's kind of a dilemma for her throughout. So in that way, Amanda Grayson, too, um, also contributes to Michael Burnham's uh, intersectional identity. And then, of course, Philippa Giorgio. <laughs> now, her relationship with Michael Burnham, I think, is even more intriguing, owing to the fact that in the mirror universe, Giorgio adopted Michael Burnham when she was a child and raised her as her own. And then this dynamic dynamic becomes even more interesting and compelling, of course, when Mirror Giorgio crosses over to the Prime universe, uh, forcing her and Prime Michael Burnham to navigate deeply complex mother-daughter ties that actually span over two opposing but deeply entwined universes. Yeah, sorry, I really need to keep track now because I often get confused between Mirror and Prime. Yeah, there's quite a lot happening there. Um, so as you know, uh, this particular Mirror universe actually has um, a very interesting relationship with the Prime universe, which is that the this particular parallel universe that they call the Mirror universe, um, it it's the exact opposite of the prime universe. So we always see the evil doppelgangers <laughs> of all the Starfleet heroes and captains in the mirror universe. Um, I'm going to go off topic again, but there's a little bit of time. So maybe I will briefly uh, talk about this. But if you haven't read it yet, um, there is a very cool comic book about the mirror version of uh, the Voyager crew. It was only released, I think, last year. Uh, it's called Smoke and Mirrors, I think. And in the Mirror Universe, Captain Janeway is a pirate. <laughs> She's a 
Pirates of the Delta Quadrant. So I always really love and enjoy the mirror universe. And um, like I mentioned briefly earlier, the fact that the mirror universe plays such a, an important part in Star Trek Discovery, some theorists have argued that um, the mirror universe uh, actually allows us, you know, the fact that space Hitler can come over to the prime universe and impersonate Captain Giorgio for so long, you know, for like two or three seasons. That is a very uh, implicit comment on liberal humanism, you know, and it makes us question, uh, you know, why is a Terran emperor able to fit in so well with, with uh, you know, in the prime universe that is supposedly so progressive? So, I know this is a bit off topic, but this is what uh, that other theorist I mentioned earlier means with Star Trek Discovery being a Star Trek that is critical of Star Trek itself. And I think maybe that's why it might not have been so popular with uh, more old school Star Trek fans. I don't know. But yeah, anyway, that's a bit off the topic. Let me get back to the discussion. So Emperor Giorgio also then, in her capacity as a mother or mentor to prime Michael Burnham, she makes a contribution to Burnham's intersectional identity. Okay, how? <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> it is prime Burnham's time spent in the mirror universe and the continual influence that the Terran emperor exerts on her after crossing over to the prime universe that continually shapes Burnham's ideologies. Now, um, yeah, there was this really moving scene, of course, in Terra Firma Part 2. I, I cried so much in that episode where these two characters, um, they kind of acknowledge each other. Uh, when, when I think Michael tells the Emperor, you know, you've always been my Giorgio. And she said, yeah, you're my Burnham too. <laughs> You know, so I was really moved by that. So we see the profound influence that this fascist, <laughs> openly fascist, Terran emperor has on Michael Burnham. Now, to clarify my previous statement, the openly fascist Emperor Giorgio challenges Burnham's and the viewer's unproblematic embrace of Federation principles by successfully impersonating her liberal humanist prime counterpart for two seasons of the show. And then in season three, especially as a consequence, we see how Michael Burnham, who supposedly presents the epitome of the Federation ideals in the first two seasons, how she struggles to find her place within the Federation and Starfleet to the point where she actually seems to kind of employ the Emperor's uh, methods. She goes on an unsanctioned mission with Emperor Giorgio. And there's this one moment, too, where Michael Burnham makes some suggestion and everyone is like, no, you're crazy. You know, we can't do that. And then the emperor is like, no, that's the best choice. You know, she's learned. She she's realized that, um, you know, maybe maybe these these ideals that the Federation has been holding up so long, you know, maybe they're not that great or maybe they're quite similar to Terran ideals, you know. So um, Star Trek Discovery really makes us question <laughs> Uh, these types of ideals and be critical of them. And Emperor Giorgio does that for Michael Burnham as well. Now, this existential crisis before her rise to captaincy further contributes to the construction of a complex heroine 
who is shaped by various factors that do not only include race and gender, but even time and space. <laughs> so the great thing about Star Trek Discovery is that, um, or, you know, reading Star Trek Discovery through an intersectional uh, lens is that it takes place in science fiction. <laughs> so we can see even more intersections taking place. Um, like I mentioned, not only race and gender, but even time and space. Um, which is, yeah, of course, why I love science fiction, because it allows us to present current issues, you know, through through the lens of science fiction and makes us uh, think about and questions what we uh, believe. Now, this is uh, relating back to the point I made about um, the critique of the Federation. Um, this implicit critique that presents the Federation and by extension liberal humanism, this speaks to the notion that existing categories of oppression or in this case, existing social or societal frameworks should be questioned or even transcended. Now, some intersectional theory says that, um, you know, we shouldn't even be looking at race and gender and sexuality as separate things. But, you know, the very fact that these categories exist is problematic. So they should be uh, questioned and they should be transcended. So this critique of liberal humanism by Star Trek Discovery, um, you know, I've read it as also a critique of, you know, um, questioning our current systems and their value and, you know, why these federation principles should be valued. Uh, what makes them valuable? Uh, are they that ideal or not? Uh, it, it opens up all of these types of questions. So, yes, there are, of course, more aspects about Michael Burnham that mark her intersexuality and um, many different things about her that transcend reductive stereotypes of women and of women of color. And em Emperor Giorgio, as you've seen, is just as interesting in terms of her intersectional identity. But I was going to wrap up here, but I see there is more time left. So, if you would like, I could speak a little bit more <laughs> about Michael Burnham. I think let me do that. I'm going to quickly scroll through the uh, comments and see if there are any questions. If you have questions uh, that you'd like me to address, then please um, you know, post it in the comments, and I'll be happy to do that. Um, Okay. <laughs> yes, please. Thank you, Eve <laughs> from England <laughs> and Susan. Um, okay. So let me talk a little bit more about Michael Burnham and then my research on her. So uh, that is it for Michael Burnham in terms of intersectionality. And Emperor Giorgio too, you can see she can also be read as an intersectional character. And um, I think in my podcast later, I will definitely talk about that too, because, you know, this bisexual Asian Malaysian um, Terran emperor that living in the prime universe working for section 31, you know, there's quite a, a lot going on there. So, um, uh, yeah, I'll do an episode on that later, but more on Michael Burnham. So this does not really relate to intersectionality specifically, but on her status as what I have found to be a fourth wave feminist heroine or fourth wave feminist sci-fi female hero. Now, 
intersectionality, there's this new um, field of uh, feminism called fourth wave feminism, and intersectionality is a key part of it. So in one vein, I argued that uh, Michael Burnham's intersectionality, you know, makes her exemplary of this new um, feminist wave that really takes intersectionality into account. But other aspects of Michael Burnham that I think is really progressive um, and that fits with this archetype of fourth wave feminist heroism, female heroism, is the fact that she is desexualized, she's androgynous, and then, of course, she has a unisex name, Michael Burnham. I'm wondering if anyone else, um, you know, theorists say about Michael's name, um, there's nothing to it, that's just her name. <laughs> you know, in the future, um, there, there might be women called Michael. And um, But that talks to the very, um, wow, cat. <laughs> Uh, second wave feminist tradition of androgyny and um, desexualization. So I've actually argued that similar to characters like Captain Janeway from Star Trek Voyager, who is desexualized, who wears her um, un her unisex star Starfleet outfit, and who um, is a female scientist who exists, you know, on um, as, as a woman that can do everything as good as a man can do it, Michael Burnham kind of emulates that type of heroism. But then, of course, with the added dimension of her intersectionality, which makes her a fourth wave feminist heroine. Um, there are many other action heroines recently that um, feature these desexualized uh, characters. Even Emperor Giorgio, you know, even though she is a little bit, um, one one theorist ex explains that she wears dominatrix style outfits, you know, she's still not a sexualized character. Some might disagree with me because of the brothel scene in season two, was it season one? Um, but Emperor Giorgio, we see um, Laura Croft, the new version of uh, Laura Croft, if you guys are familiar with that. Furiosa from Mad Max Fury Road, Captain Marvel, um, <laughs> Grace from Terminator, uh, Dark Fate. Uh, all of these sci-fi uh, se series, movies, um, even in Star Trek Picard, you know, we see Seven of Nine, who was so sexualized in Star Trek Voyager, who's now desexualized, who's also represented as a mother, we see all of these characters undergoing this very significant change of representation that um, that I would argue links it to fourth wave feminism. And then I've also argued that fourth wave feminism actually seems to be a sort of a reincarnation <laughs> of some second wave representations like Captain Janeway, uh, Sarah Connor and Ellen Ripley. Yes, <laughs> Ripley too. Thank you, Eve from England. <laughs> Yeah, like you say, the character was originally intended to be male. And then actually what they did in Alien, they didn't rewrite the script for a female character. And I think that is why Ripley is just so awesome. <laughs> she doesn't uh, descend in, into any um, stereotypes of femininity um, like we've, we've seen in so many uh, sci-fi movies and things before. Um, yes, yeah, so Michael Burnham also follows in that tradition of female heroism. And interesting, um, 
I don't know what you guys think about it, but actually, uh, Michael Burnham is accused of being too emotional sometimes. I think that's I don't I don't agree with that. Um, I think she responds like any human being would respond in the very difficult situations that she's placed in. But many um, Star Trek fans I know have complained that in every episode, Michael Burnham seems to be crying. Now, we never see Ripley crying. <laughs> um, but I've argued that this blend between traditional masculinity and traditional femininity, that also is a, another trademark of fourth wave feminist uh, heroism. We see characters that are not only androgynous and masculine in terms of being tough, in terms of being able to handle themselves, in terms of being able to wield weapons and being scientifically excellent, all of those types of things. But we see that they successfully blend masculinity and femininity. Uh, oh. Michael Burnham is not a man in a woman's body, but she is just a woman. Uh, let me show you the cat. <laughs> there she is. That's little legs. Yeah, you, her little legs because she has little legs. <laughs> um uh, we see this blend of masculinity and femininity in recent uh, sci-fi heroines, which is also why I love Michael Burnham so much. And I think that facet of her, too, could contribute to her intersectionality. You know, we see masculinity and femininity intersecting um, in, in meaningful and realistic ways. We don't have a, a man who's in a woman's body, like the old version of Laura Croft, for example, but we actually see a human being, you know, what an actual woman um, or what any person might do in the situation that Michael Burnham finds herself in. So, yes, I think that was a very uh, scatterbrained summary. <laughs> Sorry about that. I didn't actually prepare to talk about uh, fourth wave feminism and Michael Burnham. But, uh, yeah, uh, that is my uh, scatterbrained summary of what Michael Burnham uh, you know, the type of uh, heroine that she is and why, what makes her so progressive and, you know, why I love her so much and uh, why I think she's just so wonderful and so, um, so progressive and so lovely. And, you know, the fact that she becomes captain only after three seasons, um, I found that meaningful. So I'm going to briefly explain two parts of this argument and then I think I will wrap up. But I find it meaningful that she kind of works her way up to captain. Um, uh, the fact that she, she she's not just given the title of captain from the beginning, <laughs> like Captain Janeway is or um, other, uh, I would say, minority characters like uh, Captain Sisko. Um, they are not just placed in the seat of captain and then we have to accept that that is the captain and it becomes a sort of a, a box ticking exercise, you know, oh, first female captain, oh, first black captain. Um, it's not like that, but we actually see how she develops into becoming a captain, how she, um, how she struggles, how she learns, how she overcomes and her process to becoming captain. I think that's very meaningful and I think that further speaks to an intersectional representation or intersectional critique of her. Um, but then, of course, um, it might also be problematic because why are white men, white women, and black men 
given the seat of captain, <laughs> you know, from the beginning, why does a black woman need to work her way up to becoming captain? So, of course, that uh, that is that is problematic in itself. And then, you know, there's two parts to that argument. Um, I'm going to read a few comments here. Okay, uh, from Eve England, it's always bothered me how non-emotional Star Trek characters are. They go through so much and emotion is just a normal response. Burnham is just responding in a typically human way. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think Ellen Ripley's responses too. <laughs> you know, um, when, when the alien um, gets onto the ship and starts killing people, she acts in a way that any human being would act. Um, you know, she maybe... <laughs> I think I would not have been able to stay that cool and calm. And I think uh, if I was, you know, placed in some of the positions that Michael Burnham finds herself in, I would definitely have a much worse response, much more emotional response. But she she responds in a human way. And um, so does Evan, Ellen Ripley. And I, I think so does Captain Janeway, too. You know, um, I've argued similarly that Captain Janeway also blends the idea of masculinity and femininity very well. She's also represented as the mother of her crew. Uh, she's also seen being emotional on some instances. Um, these are just human beings. They're real. They're people. And I think um, that's what I really love. They're not these stereotypical ideas of what people think women should be like. And especially Michael Burnham is not stereotypical of maybe what people would think a black woman should be like, or an Asian woman should be like. So, yes, thank you for that comment. Um, let's see from Jara Hodge. Uh, saw a panel at Shore Leave last weekend where Kirsten Bayer talked about how Michael is also very forward with her feelings now because of her upbringing on Vulcan, having to suppress what are very normal human reactions to trauma. Yes, definitely, um, definitely. Uh, I think that also speaks to to that um, conflict between her Vulcan rationality and a human emotion. And I think I told my sister, it's funny how Burnham, she's Vulcan. <laughs> you know, she's supposedly Vulcan. Uh, even when she greets George Rowe, she greets like that. Um, you know, she does the Vulcan greeting because she is Vulcan. Um, but how she's <laughs> so emotional <laughs> um, to the point where you think that... Um, you know, what she wrote on Vulcan at all. But I like your interpretation, uh, Jara, that, um, you know, she had to suppress those human reactions uh, for so long being Vulcan. And we see actually the first time she she goes onto Giorgio's ship, uh, she's very poised, like, oh, you know, I'm a Vulcan with no emotion. Um, and then later, the the first thing, like significant act we see is that she you know, because of this conflict between her humanity and her Vulcan um, rationality, she she actually fires on the Klingon flagship first. So, yes, thank you for that. Okay. Um, great. Um, let me uh, quickly see here. Um, from that Mikey chick, let's see, um, to your point about Michael having to earn the chair, Cisco had to wait three seasons to get that fourth pip too. The common denominator being that they're both of African descent. Thank you for that. Actually, to be honest, uh, I didn't watch, um, Deep Space Nine yet. 
actually the only Star Treks I have watched, and maybe uh, it's embarrassing to mention this, um, is Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek Discovery, and Star Trek Picard, because they all pertain to my research. Um, I'm definitely planning on watching the other ones uh, too, but thank you for that point on Cisco. Um, maybe that's something Star Trek, you know, needs to work on. Um, of course, you know, with Michael Burnham, I, because I love the character, uh, my supervisor um, has told me before that, you know, I tend to be not critical enough of the characters because I think that they are the bee's knees, I quote from her. Because <laughs> uh, I think Michael Burnham is the bee's knees. I tend to see her through... Um, through the eyes of like everything she does is great and everything in every way that she's represented is truly great. Um, but, you know, we need to be critical. There's definitely still a lot of places where Star Trek Discovery can improve. And um, especially because they, they have a character, you know, so many diverse characters. Um, we need to be careful that it doesn't become just a box ticking exercise to say that, you know, there is a black woman, there is an Asian woman, there is a, uh, you know, Asian man on the bridge crew. There's a white man. There's a white woman. Um, you know, sometimes intersectionality has been criticized, especially the way it um, manifests in popular culture as a box-ticking exercise and not as something that actually sincerely represents a, uh, an intersectional critique. So there is that part of the argument, too. Um, obviously, I think because so much of Michael Burnham is explored, I think she transcends being just a box-ticking exercise, just being able to say that we have a black female protagonist. Um, I think she moves beyond that. But that is a very interesting point. Thank you uh, for that one. Um, Faith says you really should watch Deep Space Nine. It's the best. Uh, I'm definitely <laughs> planning to do that. Um, I, I need to get through all the Star Treks. Uh, I know I have quite a bit of work ahead of me. <laughs> I'm currently watching The X-Files, which is, I've heard, 11 seasons. So <laughs> I have a lot of stuff to watch ahead of me. But thank you for that. Um, I think I'm going to wrap up the session here. Everyone, thank you so much. Uh, I was so happy to be here. Really, thank you, Women at Warp, so much for having me. And for hosting this festival, I think it is so relevant and so important to discuss these things and to talk about it. And I'm definitely going to be tuning in um, into the other sessions, too. I'm very excited to hear what else is going to be discussed in this festival. And um, thank you for all your participation. Uh, I was really uh, happy. You know, sometimes with my research, I feel like I live in a bubble. <laughs> I'm like that person, um, that meme of the guy with the uh, connecting the dots. And I'm always trying to explain to my sister, like, look, you know, intersectionality and Michael Burnham, they go together. Um, <laughs> and then I feel like sometimes my family just looks at me like, oh, you know, this time she's lost it. <laughs> but I was so happy to see like-minded people, people that care about these topics and um, people that are willing to engage with it. So Thank you so much. Thank you, Women at Warp. Um, I'll end the session here um, the same way I end all my podcasts. Everyone, live long and prosper. Stay healthy and safe. Oh, question. Can you define intersectionality? Uh, let me go back. Sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll live long and prosper <laughs> now. Let me answer that final question. 
for Ilona in Amsterdam. Um, intersectionality, um, by its general definition, is the belief that women experience oppression in varying configurations and in varying degrees of intensity, and that cultural patterns of oppression are not only interrelated, but are bound together and influenced by the intersectional systems of society. So I paraphrase that. Women are not only oppressed in terms of sex, but women of color are oppressed by gender and race, and queer women oppressed by their sex and sexuality. And for example, queer women of color oppressed by sex, race, and sexuality, for example. Um, yeah, Ilana, I hope that uh, answers your <laughs> question. All right, everyone, thank you. I'm going to do this again. Live long and prosper. Stay healthy, stay safe. Uh, enjoy the rest of the festival. And thank you so much for tuning in and listening to my podcast. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs. Loading Sweet Preview Program 4, Beyond Farpoint, a Star Trek The Next Generation podcast. It is one of Star Trek's best episodes, not just one of Q's best episodes, it's one of Star Trek's best episodes. Definitely. It adds some real interesting depth to not just Picard, but to that relationship between Picard and Q. I think that's the one thing yeah. that runs for all these episodes, even weaker ones like Hiding Q and Encounter at Farpoint. The best thing about Q is his relationship with Picard, which is why I'm so glad he's coming back in season two of Picard, because mm. Patrick Stewart and John Delancey play off each other so well. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Her First Trek. A Star Trek review podcast. Anyway, they managed to save the day. <laughs> Spoiler. Actually, after Kirk got beaten up by a bunch by, of kids. By a bunch of kids. They were smacking him with bats and he was like being hit by the crowd. I remember he stood up and there was blood coming out of every part of his head. He was bleeding from the ears. I mean, I'm no medical expert, but yeah. I'm fairly sure if you're bleeding from the ears after a blow to the head, you've got to seek some medical attention. Yeah, from the ears, from the back of his head. You're probably having some kind of hemorrhage. I feel like his eyeballs are probably bleeding. Those kids, I mean, I know kids don't listen. I know that. Yeah. First hand, you know that. They really didn't listen. No, this. I mean, this was. It was so frustrating as this a was really as a viewer. After the first lot, I would have phased the lot of them. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.